Lord, thank you for this opportunity to gather. And Lord, as we continue to look at this passage in Galatians, we ask for your spirit to do a work. We ask that your spirit would meet us where we are at. We are going to see stories of shame again today, stories of brokenness and of flaws, but even more so a story of grace. It's this unconditional grace that no matter how broken and how flawed we are, we are still in the path of your grace if we will simply believe and follow in Jesus. So, Lord, help us to see, help us to understand, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. So it's Memorial Day weekend. It's the, it's the weekend and the day tomorrow where we have the day off of work and we'll sit on our decks and drink Cokes and barbecue a rack of ribs. But if that's all that Memorial Day is, then why in the world do we even have the day off of work? The significance of Memorial Day is much deeper than just a day off for Americans. And in fact, it goes way beyond Americans. Are you aware that Memorial Day is actually celebrated or honored in other countries of the world because of the U.S. having what's called Memorial Day? For example, those places in faraway countries that they will actually honor the military of the United States in gratitude and reverence for the sacrifices Americans made to free them from the Nazi and Japanese control. In the Netherlands alone, for instance, 8,300 headstones of Americans have been adopted by the Dutch as their own. Each grave has been adopted by a Dutch, German, or Belgian family or business and is lovingly tended to with great honor from one generation to the next. The same is true in little French villages and forests, the English countryside and islands in the Pacific. All of these places honor the gallantry and bravery of American military members who died protecting him, those people who gave their lives to bring freedom to those countries. And that's way beyond anything I had ever understood or comprehended. Memorial Day began back shortly after the Civil War and has been honored kind of since it was originally Decorations Day. And in fact, the, the first acknowledgement of what is believed to be Memorial Day took place in 1865 when a group of approximately 10,000 people, most of them were freed black slaves from the Charleston, South Carolina area. And there were some missionaries sprinkled within, and they had this parade through a graveyard in Charleston in which they had ahead of time taken the time to decorate the graves and honor the Union soldiers who had given their lives to provide for their freedom. It's, it's astounding to me as we look at the sacrifice. We catch those who were freed in the story of the Civil War, shortly after the Civil War, those who were freed remembered the sacrifice, remembered their freedom and who gave them and what gave them their freedom. And this is not dissimilar from the message that we look at in Galatians with Paul and how he points us to look at the giver of our freedom and the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on our behalf as well. And so we too today will take a moment to honor those who are willing to love another human being greatly enough to die for them. As Jesus Christ said, there's no greater love than one man has for another than to lay down his life for a friend. And so today, we will take a moment of silence and we will acknowledge those who gave the ultimate sacrifice for the freedom of mankind, people across this world, but even perhaps more so for Jesus Christ and the freedom that he brings to us.
we owe a lot to not only the men and the women who gave their lives for the freedom that we get to enjoy in this country, but the freedom that many other countries enjoy as well. And even more so, I want the emphasis, I want us to remember and reflect on this amazing sacrifice that Jesus Christ gave to us as well. Thank you to those who have lost loved ones who gave their lives for the sake of freedom. We greatly appreciate it. As we transition, I want us to look again at Galatians chapter 4. You know, we, we spent some time last week looking at this idea of shame. We talked about the shame that we as individuals have. We all have these moments of shame in our lives. Most of them, let's be honest, I don't want to share my shameful stories with anyone. These are those kind of things that we keep within ourselves and we, we hide them from other people. And they're all throughout scriptures. I loved and appreciated the testimonies we had last week with those who chose to follow Christ in the waters of baptism. What a powerful testimony. It's like, you know, yes, I was consumed by shame. Still am. But guess where my power now lies? It's, in, it's with Jesus Christ. But the Bible's full of, of shameful stories. And we're going to see one here today as well as we, as we engage in it. But shameful stories, such as on one occasion, there was this incredibly powerful man in the Scriptures. He abused his power, and he commits adultery with another man's wife. She became pregnant out of fear of exposing his wickedness. He tried to hide the event with a cover-up that turned murderous. And this is David, who was seen as a man after God's own heart, and yet what shame existed. Could you imagine the shame that he would have felt when he was exposed for the sin in his life? And there's other stories in the scripture. There was this woman. Her life was a wreck. To avoid the shame and the mockery, she would go to draw water for herself and her family, and she would go in the heat of the day. And in that culture, that didn't make sense. What people would do in that culture at that time is they would go in the cooler of the day. They would go twice a day. They would go once in the morning, and they would get all the water that they needed for the day. And then they would go once at night in the evening and draw the water that they would need for the overnight. That's what they did. But what was, what was interesting about this woman is her life was such a mess and she was mocked by the people around her. She had so much shame that he, she was not willing to go to the well to draw the water in the morning or at night because that's when everyone else was there. And so to hide her shame, to hide behind that which she had done, and she knew very well what she had done, she would go when there was no one else around where she could kind of do it in secret. And Jesus happened to be there at that time and call her out on her shame. It's like, hey, what are you shameful of? She wouldn't necessarily admit it, but Jesus drew it out anyway. He says, you've been married to five different husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. And she's like, wow, how do you know all my shame? And I love what Jesus does, even in that moment. He takes that shame, just like we talked about last week. He takes the shame, in a sense, from her. And there's another story. There was this woman, she's caught in the, in the very act of adultery, And when she's caught in the very act, use your imaginations if you need to, but the reality of being caught in the very act of adultery, she's drug out from that event into the middle of the street where Jesus is teaching in front of everyone. And so she's drugged there, knowing full well what she had just been caught doing, laid at Jesus' feet, and then there's a whole group of men standing around her with stones in their hands and saying, she should be shamed, we should kill her, and they're standing there with these rocks. Talk about the shame that she would have felt at that moment. And Jesus, who is perfect, shameless, had done nothing to deserve shame. Even in that moment, he takes the shame from her and he invites anyone, hey, if anyone of you have no shame in your life, by all means, 
throw the stone, and all of them recognizing their own shame, leave. And then the one person who didn't leave, who has no shame, who could rightfully take the stone, it says, where have your accusers gone? And she says, they've left. It says, neither do I accuse you. And he takes, in a sense, that shame from her as well. There was another one. This one's a little bit more obscure. Not everyone realizes this, but this shameful act was incredible. You had this woman in the Scriptures, New Testament, and she had been bleeding for 12 years. And in that culture, again, we'll put blood on the culture, in that culture she would have been seen as extremely unclean. In other words, there is no hope for this woman to acclimate into any kind of society. She is an outcast in all aspects. And this woman does something incredibly shameful. She reaches her hand out and she touches a man. Not only any man, but she touches what would be a rabbi, a great teacher. And she reaches out on her own and touches him. This was incredibly scandalous. And this woman does it. And Jesus, who feels the power leave from him and into the woman to heal her, again, casts no shame upon her. And today we're going to look at this story that Paul's going to bring up. It's an Old Testament story between Hagar and Sarah. And so we're going to look a little bit further into that. And so we're going to look, here's, here's our kind of our pattern today. We're going to look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. In the midst of that, we're going to actually reflect back as Paul talks about Hagar and Sarah, we're going to look back at the Genesis account of that. Not in its full uh, length because we've got multiple chapters. We're going to try to pull some pieces in from that so that you may have a better understanding of who Hagar is and who Sarah is. Because I realize not everyone may have a comprehension of that. And so we're going to pull in, understand that story and what Paul is really kind of pointing to with that story because it's an astounding illustration. And then we're going to look at the remainder of Galatians chapter 4, and I want us to conclude with this picture of brokenness. And I think today, I sense the Spirit wants to to draw that reality, more so than where we were at last week, this idea of our shame and our brokenness. I'm convinced that the Lord wants to do a work in us. A lot of times, I don't think we like to acknowledge our brokenness. I'm fine. The idea of I'm okay, you're okay. And deep down, we know I'm a wreck, and I'm going to hide it. I'm ashamed, and I'm going to hide it. And I really believe the Holy Spirit wants to meet us where we're at. It's like, hey, guess what? I know you're ashamed, but I've got something for you. And I think that we try so hard to fix our brokenness. Look at our world. This is a broken world. If you haven't realized that our world is a broken world, you didn't look at the news this last week. I rarely really follow the news, and I'm well aware of all the things that happened this last week. This is a broken world. And mankind tends to want to, oh, well, we better fix our broken world. And what happens when we try to fix our broken world? Our broken world becomes more broken. That's what happens. It's like me trying to repair a vehicle. One time I was trying to repair a 1991 Ford Escort. That's what I drove for a while. And the, I know it's a very manual, manly vehicle. It actually had one of those, this was at those times, it was 1991, it had the automatic seatbelts, you know, where you put your key in, and it buckled you up for you. Very safe, unless, of course, you don't put in the strap. Then you just get decapitated. But I, I drove this, this 1991 uh, Ford Escort, and it, would, it stopped heating. And it's Minnesota, and it's winter, and you need heat 
from your vehicle. And so I, I brought it into my dad's shop. I didn't have a garage at the time. And so I bring it into to dad's garage. He's got heat in there. And so I'm working on it in the winter. And the thermostat is a problem. You know what the thermostat is? It, it, it's, this, I, it's this little part inside of your engine that as it gets warm, it opens up to cool the engine. And as it gets cold, it stays closed to kind of keep the engine warm. Well, it gets stuck sometimes. It's like this valve and it gets stuck. And when it gets stuck, well, then you're either going to run it too hot or you're going to run it too cold. And in winter in Minnesota, it was running too cold. No heat for me. And so I'm in this process of trying to fix it. Well, they put on these 8-millimeter head bolts, which means the actual bolt itself is smaller, on the side of an engine block, which is constantly getting hot and cold, hot and cold, hot and cold. You know what that does to metal when it gets hot and cold, hot and cold, hot and cold? It makes it what's called brittle. And so as I'm trying to take out the thermostat housing to replace the simple part, the bolt breaks inside of the engine block. So when I tried my efforts to fix it, just make it worse. And that's kind of what happens in our life like this. We try to fix things. And when we try to fix things, and that's what we're going to see this pattern today, we make things worse. So let's look at it. So here we go. Galatians chapter 4. This is where we kind of left off. Again, last week we were were in with the baptism, and this is actually piggybacking from two weeks ago. And Paul says to us, he says, tell me, you who want, I like that word, to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? In other words, again, just to pull it all in, Galatians, Paul is writing to this, these churches in this region of Galatia, and these churches have been God believers. They've been Jesus Christ believers. They understand who Jesus is. They said, yes, we want that kind of freedom. Well, there would be, there, in their midst came people who were false teachers that started teaching them. It's like, yeah, you can believe in Jesus, but along with that, you also have to hold to all of the Jewish laws. Otherwise, it doesn't count in a nutshell. And so you have to be circumcised. You have to obey the days of the law. You have to obey all of the law. And all of these things, they put on all of this baggage on these new believers in the Galatian region. And Paul's saying, that's absurd. No, no, that is not the gospel. The gospel is not a works that you perform on your own. The gospel is something that Jesus Christ did for you. And so that kind of piggybacks us into where we're at today. Tell me, Those who want to be under the law. In other words, those who have said, you know, I kind of like this to-do list because then I can check these things off and know that I'm righteous. I I think I can be good enough. I think I can be self-righteous. And so he says, those of you who want to be under the law, those who want to be self-righteous, those who think you can do it on your own, are you not aware of what the law actually says? And so he's going to give us this revelation on it. I may have pushed something. It's not working for me. Can you help me? There we go. Thank you. In verse 22, then he says, Paul goes into it. He says, For it is written that Abraham, which we've talked about Abraham and the promise and the fact that Abraham believed and that was credited to him as righteousness. We've kind of covered that. If you're a little bit lost in it, I apologize. You may have to go back and look at some previous weeks because we can't cover it all here today. But it, he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons. We always look at Isaac. That is true. But there was another son. There was Ishmael. And we're going to look more at what this contrast looks like today. One by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. So that, Paul brings in this story between Hagar and Sarah. 
Let's look at the story. So in Genesis chapter 12, we've looked at some of these things. And so this is, is what was going on in that time. We've talked about Abraham. We've talked about this promise that was given to Abraham. And this is an example of it. The Lord said to Abraham, who was going to be Abraham, it's the same person, okay? Name change in that, that way to acknowledge the covenant that he was making. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to a land that I will show you. In other words, he says, Abram, I want you to go. Pack up your stuff. I want you to go. And this is the first moment that Abraham, Abraham, Abram has a chance to obey and believe what God is saying. He says, I, he gives this promise. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. At this point, Abram still had no children. And so for Abram to be a great nation, one thing has to happen. He has to have a child. Okay? And you're going to see that kind of play out as we look, as we work through this. He says, I'll make your name great. In order for Abram's name to be great, you know what has to happen? He has to have a child. Otherwise, his legacy ends. You, you grasp that? You know, a, a father, if you want your Olson last name to reign, you know, granted in Minnesota, most half of everyone is named Olson anyway, okay? If, if I was in, you know, like I say, Kentucky, and your name is Olson, oh yeah, where'd you come from then? Uh, so it's a totally different scenario. But the reality, the picture of it is, if I have all daughters... And I want my name to continue. Something has to happen. It's got to be a son that's going to carry the namesake. You follow? And in a sense, this is that picture. He says, I will make your name great. In other words, in order for you to have your name great, it's got to be something that's going to last. What's going to, what has to happen? You've got to have a son. That's really what's happening. And you will be a blessing. And so this is that promise that is made to Abram at that time. He says, I will bless those. I love this because this comes in. We don't look at this in this connection, but it's there. He says, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. All people on earth will be blessed through you. This is an astounding statement. So here's this one man who is childless. And God says, I'm going to bless the whole world by you. That's God's promise. Not Abraham's strategy. Notice the difference. So Abraham went. Good for you. He, he heard what God said. He believed him and he went. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Lot would have been a nephew. Abraham was, was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. 75. Any 75 year olds here? That's okay. You don't have to admit it. Okay. But you have this 75 year old. Just keep this in mind. Those who are 75 and even older, keep this in mind. This is not a criticism, just understand this. Abraham still doesn't have a child. Okay, so put yourself into those shoes. How do you respond? Right? Yeah, I don't have the energy for young kids and I'm 46. I can't imagine what I will feel like when I'm 75. At least then as a grandparent, you can have your kids and send them home with your, or your grandkids and send them home with your kids. But Abraham was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, her name gets changed to him, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated. They set out for the land of Canaan. That was that promised land. We see that with Moses. It's the same area. And they arrived there. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, this is the second time now, to your offspring I will give this land. So in other words, Abram, look out around you. Do you see this? I'll give it to you. It can be yours. It's going to be yours. I'm, I'm, I promise it to you. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. He took some time and he built this altar and he remembered what God had said. He remembered the promise that God had made to him. And that's important too because I feel like Abraham's going to forget it. We're jumping ahead to uh, chapter 15 now. So God has already made this promise to Abraham. You're going to be this great nation. And yet he has no children. Okay? 
Stage two. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, catch this, Abram's not ignorant. He has not forgotten what God had said. He says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? All right, you, you, I know the promise that you made, but are you aware that I still have no children? which I'm sure God's well aware, but it's, it's in a sense, that's kind of what Abram is saying here. God, are you aware? You made this promise to me, and yet I don't have a child. So how you got this figured out, I'm not quite sure yet. So because of this fact that I'm childless, I can, my mind, I can only come up with one way, and this still doesn't fit with your promise. Who's going to inherit my estate? Eliezer of Damascus? In other words, it's my servant, which we've talked about in the past weeks. That would totally be appropriate. Someone, if you have no heir, you can designate one of your servants to become your heir, and that person becomes like a son. We looked at Paul, talked about that just a few weeks ago. And Abram said, you have given me no children. God, remember this promise? You've given me no child. This is my only option. So a servant in my household will be my heir. God's response is, and the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir. Okay, Eliezer seemed like the logical choice to me. I don't know what else you have in mind. I've heard the promise, but guess what? I'm not getting any younger. He will not be your heir, but this man will not be your heir, but as a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. In other words, you're going to have a child. Okay, but perhaps Abram and Sarai are thinking, my biological clock is ticking, so be aware of that. He took him outside and he said, look up at the sky. And count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This is crazy, because Abram's getting old. But yet it says, Abram believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Powerful picture. It's astounding. Genesis 16. Abram's getting older. Sarah's getting older. Now Sarai, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So the saga continues. There's still no child involved in this story. But she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So Sarah, Sarah has a, a maid servant, basically, and her name is Hagar. And so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. I have heard the promise that you had said, that God had said to you. I still don't have children. I don't know if you've noticed that, but we have no offspring as of yet. And despite this promise, like in order for you to be this great nation, something has to happen. You have to have a child. That's what has, that, that's the requirement. And she says, the Lord has kept me from having children. Take my slave. Perhaps I, Sarah thinking, I can build a family through her. In other words, have a child with my maidservant, and then it'll be like, that's my only hope. Because I'm barren, I'm broken, I'm getting older. That's the hope of the world right there. And it's astounding. Because that's in a sense what Abram does. He says, Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram, so after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, 10 years longer, Sarah His wife took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife, and she conceived. And he was like 85 years old. Didn't get any younger. Any 85-year-olds here? Maybe you can relate. Galatians 4. Paul's going to point back to this story. And we'll look one more time at Genesis. Genesis chapter 18, I've got up here yet. But Paul's going to take this story 
And he's going to try to equate it. He's using it as an illustration. Sometimes we look at what Paul says here and we have issues with it. Because while he's calling Sarah good and, and Hagar bad, that's not really what he's getting at. He's using this as an illustration to point to the difference that the people are experiencing between the law and freedom. The law and the promise. So Galatians chapter 4, verse 24. So these things are being taken figuratively. Paul even tells us so. The, wom- the women represent two covenants. Okay? One covenant is from Mount Sinai. That would be the law. That's where Moses received the law. One of these women is representing Mount Sinai or the law. And the other one, and bears children uh, who are slaves, this is Hagar. Okay, So this Mount Sinai woman that represents the law is Hagar, the maidservant. She bears the children who are slaves. Chapter 25, or verse 25, it says, Now Hagar stands on Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. In other words, the physical city of Jerusalem, which has rejected Jesus Christ, that has, the, the Jewish, they've held to the law. That is what they know, that is what they believe, that is what they hold to. So now Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and it corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. So here's the slave woman. She's never been set free. She's birthing a slave child who they're representing the law. Okay, don't, don't go, start going into those, oh, Hagar, who is she? Is she bad? Is she good? You're missing the point. This is representative of what we're looking at here. But the Jerusalem that is above, in other words, this promise of a new Jerusalem is something different. So the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother referring to Sarah. So we've got Sarah, who represents freedom, and we have Hagar, who represents slavery. And then Paul pulls in this passage from Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54, verse 1. You'll see that it's quoted there. He says, For it is written, Be glad, barren woman. And understand this in that culture. A woman who could not conceive children was also looked at as damaged, shameful, broken. That was really, in a sense, their identity. And so this was a significant issue for Sarah as she's living her life. Here you have this, this man, Abram. God's made him a promise. And yet here you are in the midst of that promise. He's 85. You're no spring chicken. And you haven't been able to help fulfill the promise that God made. Do you, do you see what she would be struggling with? Do you see her, her mind and her emotion with that? It's like, this is just another example of my failure. This is just another example of my brokenness. I'm so tired of being broken. Why can't, why can't I be like other people and be accepted? And so here you have Sarah who's broken. In an interesting contrast, what we find in this, this story, I'm getting a little bit off here, but I think it'll pull in and tie well. In the story, the Old Testament story, when we look at, at Hagar, when, when she does end up having a child named Ishmael, Sarah can't stand it. She's incredibly jealous. And so she says to, to Abraham, she says, I can't take it. Get rid of him. Send him off. And so Abraham says, yeah, do whatever you want. And so Sarah sends her maidservant and her child out into the wilderness. There's no man involved because Abraham stayed. There's no father. So it's just the two of them. They're off out in the wilderness and they're alone. And we find this moment where Hagar has her child. She's weeping. She's incredibly thirsty, and the child is dying of thirst. She's broken as well. And in the midst of that moment, 
You have this gracious God who sends an angel, and the angel basically says what's going on, and the Hagar says, I'm dying. Unless I get something to, for my baby to drink, my baby's going to die as well. And the, the scriptures say the angel opened her eyes and she saw there before whether it was miraculously put there or had been there before and she just hadn't seen it. it makes no difference. It was God pointed out to her a well and God spared Hagar and Ishmael. And then he actually makes this promise to Hagar and Ishmael. He says, this child is going to be also a great nation. He's going to have 12 sons of his own. This is an incredible gracious blessing in the midst of what seems to be this chaotic brokenness. And what we have in this situation, you have Abraham and Sarah, and this promise has been made to them, and God hasn't fulfilled the promise. You ever get tired of waiting? You ever get tired of just like, God, when will you do what you say you're going to do? And you're just tired of it. I'm tired of being broken. I'm tired of the shame. I'm tired of, of being who I am. And God, you say that you can change my life. You can change my heart. We heard the testimony from Greg last week. It's like, when are you going to give me a heart of flesh? I'm just tired of it. And you have this gracious God that says, trust me. But in the midst of it, Abraham, what he does is he, he concedes to what Sarah said. In other words, God made this promise. It's not happening. So what do we do? Well, we got to help him out. God said it, so let's help him. That's really what's happening. And so they, they try to help God out in the midst of this. So it's like, well, we'll, we'll do this. And what, what Paul's trying to get us to understand, what I'm convinced that we need to see is the work that Abraham and Sarah did. He goes back from believing, away from believing, back to, I'll do it. How many times in our lives do we say, okay, I better take control of this because God's not doing anything. We try to take control of it. We try to fix things on our own. And when we try to do that, we're missing the fact that God's got something really sweet, perhaps, in mind that we need to own up to. And this is, in a sense, this picture. But he says, be glad, O broken and barren woman. You who never bore a child. He's saying this to Sarah. Shout for joy. And this, the parallel is it's also pointing to Israel, just to be clear on this. It's when they were in exile, and then they were basically locked up and shamed and barren and broken as well. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. So in other words... God's got something so much sweeter in store for you. You're going to do so much good, but you just got to trust me. You got to trust me. Some of us, I think God's calling us to trust him. I don't know what you're dealing with. I don't know what you're going through, but I'm convinced that God wants us to trust him. And so whatever you're facing, maybe that's the message that you need to hear today. Back to Genesis 18. So this is the reaction. He sent, she sent Hagar off. God said to Hagar, actually, here's the thing. I want you to go back to your mistress. I want you to submit to her. Beautiful picture. Well, that's not our lesson for today. There's three guys come by. They're, they're considered to be angelic beings, and they go and they meet with Abraham, and they say, guess what? You're going to have a child. It's like, yeah, I've heard that message before. Here we are 20-plus years later. I don't know if I'm going to buy that any longer. But Sarah hears this message that these men say to Abraham, and she actually laughs out loud because she'd been hearing it for years, at least 20 years at this point. 25, almost at this point. She's been hearing this message, and so she hears it again. You're going to have a child. She laughs. Look at what she says. She thought, after I am worn out and broken, 
And my Lord is old. That's referring to Abraham. And my husband is old. Will I now have this pleasure? I don't have the energy for this anymore. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know what else? You see that verse right there? You see, does it strike a memory? It's the Christmas story. The angel goes to Mary, who also was in a moment of impossibility of having a child. She's a virgin. It's impossible for her to be pregnant. And likewise, Sarah, it's impossible for her to be pregnant. Because she is barren. She's broken. You see, that's really sweet. Did you kind of catch that? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return next year and Sarah will have a son. And she does. And Abraham was like 100 years old. Sarah was 90 years old. 25 years had passed from when that promise was given to when they received it. And then things get complicated. Just like most of our families, there's dysfunction in the family. And we have what, what we find, and it's actually somewhat of a quote from Genesis chapter 21, verse 9. He says, Now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of a promise. In other words, when you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong to the, the mother of the promise, not the one that works to fix things on your own. Do you see the difference? By Abraham going through Hagar, it's like, I'm going to try to fix things on my own. But in trusting in the promise, wait for him, wait for him, wait for him. God's got something in store for you. Trust him. But it's been 25 years. I know. Trust him. I don't know if things will ever change. I know. Trust him. That's faith. And that's why it was given as a credit to Abraham. He said, but it's, they got dysfunction. So in this, in this midst, we're, we're going to see this conflict. It actually is spoken of in Genesis 21, verse 9. He says, now you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh, in other words, Abraham taking matters into his own hands, persecuted the son by the power of the spirit. In other words, Ishmael then starts to mock and criticize Isaac. And we see it real briefly in the Old Testament. You see this conflict rise up between the two of them. It is the same now. And this is what Paul is getting at. Again, we, we, we can try to tie in too much. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to look at the illustration. And he says the same is true now. You've got those who are acting in the flesh telling those who are acting in faith, you've lost your mind. When are you going to start taking things into your own hands? And the, 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 people, the Spirit is leading to say, hey, we're going to let the Lord take things into His hand. You see the difference? But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. In other words, those who hold to doing the work in their own power, their own flesh, will not receive the inheritance. Bring this into today's culture. Those who believe that if I do all the right things, if I go to church, I'm a good person. If I'm there every Sunday, if I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't go with girls who do, and all of that stuff... If I do all the right things, then maybe I'll be accepted. Those who put their faith in what they do versus those who put their faith in a God who's much greater than themselves. That's what Paul's getting at. Those who put their faith in what they do, they'll never see the inheritance. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we, do, we are not children of the slave woman, but we are children of the free woman, and that is through belief. Okay, a couple things I want us to understand. Number one, I already said it, we're broken. We're messed up. We're shameful. I could make a list of my shames. It would not be adequate. It would not be long enough. And when I got it done, I would never let any of you see it. 
I'll just, that's, that's the reality. I won't. Because I'm too ashamed of it. And yet, it says that Jesus emptied the cross of its shame. So I am shameful. If you think, wow, I'm not very shameful, shame on you. You catch that? I mean, seriously? Come on. I'm not trying to cast us all under the bus in that sense, but I think it's important that we understand the beauty of what Jesus did. And if we don't understand our shame, we don't understand the beauty of what Jesus did. So look at this. If you're shamed, if you're messed up, Jesus came for you. Because if we think that I can get this all together, I can fix myself first. How many times have we done that? There's so many people like, oh, I can't go to church. They'll, they'll judge me. So, I'm sorry. It's probably going to happen. It'll probably happen here. That's not it. That's not true. I don't want that to happen. But the reality of it is we tend to shame each other because it somehow makes us feel less shameful. And then the reality of it is there's someone else who takes away the shame and not my myself. Jesus answered them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. If you're full of shame, if you're a broken person, the gospel's for you. If you think, ah, I've got it all together, the gospel's not for you. You see? If you've got it all together, you don't need Jesus. Jesus isn't someone you just pull out of your pocket when you need him. If you think that that's what Jesus' role is, then you don't understand the gospel and you don't understand what Jesus did for you. He said, it's not the healthy who need the doctor, but it's the sick. And this is the time Jesus was going. He was meeting with those who were seen as outcasts. And Jesus said, don't you get it? I came for that. And you're all sick. (laughs) That's the crazy part. You're all sick. I have not come to call the righteous. I didn't come. If you've got it all together, you don't need me. I came for the sinners to repent. John 9, we get this real brief picture of it, and we're going to wrap up here in just a moment with Matthew 21. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned or this man? This was where Jesus is coming into the, the city, and there's this man at the gate, and he's blind. He was born blind. And the disciples, in all their wisdom, say, well, well who sinned that this man was born blind? In other words, some, he, he did something that messed him up. He did, this is the cause and effect. He didn't do, he didn't live a righteous life. And because of that fact, or it's his parents, then he's got to be punished for it. And they're missing the bigger picture of what Jesus is about. And so they asked Jesus, says, who sinned? This man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither. Don't you get it? This isn't about the cause and effects of punishment and sin. And yes, there's consequences for sin. Don't misunderstand that. But he says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. And Jesus heals him, and it's for the point of understanding this grace that Jesus came to offer. One final thing, and so we're going to bypass the first section here, but basically what we have is the people are challenging Jesus with who authority, on whose authority are you doing these things? Whose authority are you healing and stuff? Okay? Whose authority are you speaking on? And Jesus is not going to answer that. He ends up saying, I'll answer this question if you will answer my question. And he ends up asking the question, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or was it from human origin? And the people is just like, well, they know they're trapped. And they end up saying, well, if it was, from, if we say if it was from uh, heaven, then we have to believe in the words in the baptism that, that John the Baptist was saying, but we don't know that we're comfortable with that. And yet if we say that we're, it's from man, then why aren't we doing something about it? And the bottom line is because we're afraid of the people. And it's really what's going on. And so Jesus said, so they say to Jesus, we just, we don't know. And then he says, neither will I tell you on whose authority 
I'm doing these things. But then he goes on. He says, what do you think? And this is, just grasp this. If you feel like you deserve the promises of God, align yourself here because you get two contrasts. If you understand your brokenness, you understand your wretchedness, listen to this. What do you think? He says, there was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. The son said, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the older son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will. But he did not go. I, one of my daughters was politely disobedient. And so basically what that means is you'd ask her to do something and she'd say, okay, dad. Okay. And she'd never do it. I couldn't help but think of her in this picture. just like, okay, I'll tell you what you want to hear. But I'm not going to really follow. That's what Jesus is pointing at here. He says to them, he says, which of the two did what his father wanted? And they understood the first. And Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors, those who are outcasts, those who are depraved, those who don't deserve the kingdom of heaven, those who are immoral, and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. Even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe in him. Are you broken? Are you tired of being broken? You can't fix it. You'll never do enough. You'll never be the righteous person. You'll never be the moral example. But yet we're broken. And when we come to understand our brokenness, then and only then can we come to understand, wow, Jesus is good. He takes away our brokenness. He takes away our shame. Not because of any work that we did, because of the work that he did. I'm going to invite Pam and the worship team. I want you to reflect on the brokenness. Where are you at? If you were to make a list, what would it include? Do you feel like you've done enough to earn your way into the presence with the Lord? Or are you under this point, it's like, I'm so broken, I can't deserve it. I'm so broken, he would never accept me. You know, it's interesting, we look at what would have been said about Sarah. It would have been along the lines of, you're too broken, you can't have a child, you're too old, you're too weak, you don't have enough energy. And yet, there she is as the example. And likewise for us, maybe you're finding lies from the enemy, whether it's church people, whether it's family members, whether it's in your own mind, you're not good enough. God could never accept you. You're too much of a mess. You'd have to get this straightened up first. That's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is grace and freedom.